podcast. I am your host, Brian Middleton, and we are having the second crossover podcast that we've ever hosted here on the Obehave and Natural podcast. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Lords to speak to us about reflective behavior change. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, how are you, Brian? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm well. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful day out here in Nevada. It's a beautiful here, day here in Tennessee, too. It's uh, nice and, and muggy, but also quite sunny. And my dogs are really aching to get outside, and I'm aching to go with them. But we're aching to learn more about this reflective behavior change as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. So reflective behavior change. Um, I guess we should start from the top. Can you describe or define what that is in your own words? Um, Yeah, so can I start with just a little introduction on um, how I got here maybe to, uh, you know, pave the way for the discussion on why why reflective behavior change? Is that okay if I do like a short? Of course. Okay, so I, I ended up in the field of behavior analysis really in kind of a circuitous way. Um, so I had, I forgot to ask you to introduce yourself. I'm sorry. <laughs> so this is, this is good. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. So, um, you know, I, I came in via child welfare and the foster care system and then had pivoted to school-based mental health working, um, in suicide prevention, working with non-suicidal self-injury, Um, But then that sort of fed into remediating big problem behaviors happening at school, like the chair throwers or the kids who are maybe attempting to harm others. And so um, as a result, I started looking for more, right? Um, And that's how I got into ABA. And so um, I'm coming from experience working in schools, doing home-based ABA, but also lots of time spent thinking about how we can use behavior analysis to really augment our service delivery in these other avenues like child welfare, juvenile justice, residential systems, school systems. And so right now I'm working primarily in systems. Um, I work in a K-12 school district, um, coordinating the multi-tiered systems of support, um, which they used to call PBIS. Um, and it's really the marriage of ABA and organizational side, right? So yeah. taking what's happening in the system, but also happening, you know, at the micro levels. Um, so as a result, I was feeling like, um, you know, I, I want to get into this idea of reflective practice because I have to constantly be thinking about what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, um, and how does it relate to these different applications? It's not just in a clinical setting where you control so many of the variables where you can manipulate things so easily or at least lock them down a little more easily. Um, So I started an LLC for the purpose of disseminating behavior analysis in all aspects of behavior, Um, like what's happening in everyday life, what's happening in corporate life, what's happening in, what's happening on the playground. Um, And I started to host the Reflective Behavior Change Community of Practice. So my goal is, because I certainly don't have a corner on the market, I want to expand my way of thinking about behavior in diverse applications, but also help other analysts or even other fields that are peripheral to our own really be thinking about how we think about behavior. Um, This derives from 
the reflective practitioner model, which was really popular in the 90s in, um, in higher education of um, being able to really be cognizant of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and pushing to um, change yourself for the right reasons and improve your own practice. Um, so I've had um, the opportunity to do some presentations um, onto the New Jersey conference. I've presented for the Teachers College at the University of Rochester, the Behavior Analysis Program at University of Oklahoma. Um, and now I'm finishing my doctorate with a dual specialization in clinical psych and also organizational psych. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I got here. Um, and I'm hoping today we can talk more about like where, where this is going and also give you some tools for your listeners who may be preparing for the exam, who may be wanting to see how does this tie into the task list? How will it help me study to become certified? Um, because yeah. we need to get more analysts out there certified and able to deliver because there's so much need for understanding of behavior in all walks of life. Well, and you mentioned um, a community that you have. Um, if someone were to want to join into that community, um, where would they go? So it is Reflective Behavior Change. It's a Facebook group. It's actually set to private right now because I was getting some weird uh, um, people trying to join. <laughs> so um, what I will do is give you the link to it, the direct link. You can um, post it with the podcast. So if people want to find us, they can. Okay. Um, but primarily people are joining from word of mouth in the different ABA Facebook groups that are out there. So would you be okay with me like putting it in the show notes? Sure. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Cool. So I'll make sure to link that in. And that way, um, folks, you can join in and, and be a part of a, a really great community, which I recently joined. Yeah, and we're happy to have you. Okay, so <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about like what is reflective behavior change in the context of where we got to or how you got to this and what you've been doing with it. So where do we go from here? Um, so for me, when I am in this place where where I'm wanting to be reflective in my practice. Mm. Um, I'm going to say to myself, um, what do I know about my learner? Um, what do I know about the culture and the curriculum of my environment, um, including like the hidden curriculum? Cause you know, there's hidden curriculums. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, the, the unwritten order of things, the, the unwritten rules that everyone seems to be following. And that can be difficult for um, those of us who are um, maybe neuroatypical, um, seeing those hidden curriculums. Um, and yep. what's the context in which teaching and learning are, are occurring? And how can I improve based on being critical and reflective of these pieces? Um, so this is, um, to me, this hits on, you know, right in the dimensions of ADA, um, hitting that our clients have a right to effective and ethical treatment. That means I have to know what ethical treatment is in the context. Um, and being reflective also helps me to simultaneously um, renew and invigorate my practice and align my actions with my values. Um, because as a provider, I never want to be implementing a program that feels gross to implement. I would never want to implement a program I wouldn't want implemented on me um, or on my child. Yeah. Um, and then also, um, 
self-awareness, I think is important. So I have to be able to tact my, um, myself and how I affect the teaching and learning process. I have to be aware of my own acquisition, skills, knowledge, preferences, um, and biases, I'll say. Um, and I need to be able to identify my current learners and the setting, um, you know, the characteristics of my learner and the characteristics of my setting. And I need to have a vision for accountability and um, commitment to developing my learner's potential. Um, I, and I see these pieces as falling right in line with our ethical code, our responsibility to our, ourselves, to our clients, to the field, um, and holding ourselves to a high standard. Um, I think I went into human services thinking everybody was there for the right reasons and the right reasons being everybody's best good and social significance for our learners. Um, I think I had that loss of innocence moment realizing that not everybody's in um, human services or education for um, that lofty goal of, of improving life. Some are in it because, you know, it's a paycheck. Some are in it because they maybe like to be able to um, influence and um, affect others around them because, you know, some kind of a, a delivering self-reinforcement through ego or something. Um, but being reflective helps me make sure I'm always aligning to those values. Well, and I would, I'd like to play devil's advocate for just a moment. I, I know that there are people in it for the wrong reasons, but I also think that a lot of people are in it thinking that they're doing good and thinking that they're making a difference, but they're not aware of the consequences of their actions. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're coming in, trying to help, trying to support. It's, it's like the, the teacher's aid or, or the, the special ed teacher. I was this teach special ed teacher at one point who is over prompting and is creating prompt dependence. It's not that they mean to cause harm, but they are causing harm because they're not cultivating independence on the individual, uh, or for the individual. So, um, a lot of times when I'm seeing people causing harm um, or at the bare minimum contributing towards a culture that is non-beneficial towards the learner, it's not out of intent, but it's rather out of lack of knowledge or reflection. Um, and I, it, it sounds to me like reflective behavior change is a crucial piece in trauma-informed care. Um, I hope so. I like to, I like to hope so. I'm I'm working on, as I mentioned, um, my doctorate in psychology, and the reason I went back for the doctorate was I wanted to expand my own wheelhouse in that area of trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you know, pivoting off of what you were saying with um, good intentions can still lead to bad outcomes. I will also say there's a lot of negative reinforcement acting on people in all branches of human services um, in parenting, you know, we go with what maybe is going to be the best way to avoid something that's aversive to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that requires that critical look at the environment too. So if, if someone's in a teaching role, whether it's teaching like as a teacher or as a behavior analyst or as a parent, if our teaching environment is so aversive that we're looking to um, be able to remove 
um, a child from our space because, you know, because it's, it's so difficult for us. We're not matched. And I'll talk about this idea of being matched uh, in our learning environments. We're not matched if we're seeking to escape or avoid that scenario. And a lot of times that's what I see is people are, are sort of at the end of their rope um, and then something goes terribly wrong. Yeah. Um, so, and it's, you know, if we broke it down, the function would be um, escape or avoid an aversive um, where the client or the student has become aversive. Mm -hmm. And if the client has become aversive, there's a very solid chance that the practitioner, the educator, the parent, that other person is possibly not, not definitively, but possibly aversive to the client, the individual. Right. It doesn't happen in a, a vacuum. So round we go. Right. And yeah. Um, and so, um, so my goal, I think with the community of practice is let's get people together. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's, let's talk about seeing into the matrix of behavior, what's going on, but for ourselves too, like seeing into the matrix of why did I respond that way? Um, or why, why is that my, um, why am I being looped into some kind of cycle that yeah. isn't the cycle I want to be looped in? And I'm not just talking about, you know, unethical scenarios where we're, we're um, inadvertently harming others, but even just scenarios we don't want to be in. Why am I perpetuating a behavior in my own life that maybe is maladaptive for me? That's not helping me meet my goals, um, but also for our learners. How are we helping our learners have more choices so they can access what they want out of life. Um, even if it's not what from an outside looking in, I would say this is what I want for you, but what, what do you want? Yeah. And that's something that I'm thinking, I think about quite a bit. Um, when I was what, very early on in my, in my ABA education, one of the things that, that somebody had mentioned and I, I looked up, a little bit about it is that B.S. Skinner believed that there was no such thing as free will. And uh, I may have mentioned it previously on other podcasts, but uh, I get, I get a little twitchy with that because I, I feel like the, there's not, not a solid operational definition of free will. And so I want to operationally define it. And so what I've operationally defined free will as is one exuding influence over their environment with the intent of changing or modifying their behavior and or their environment, AKA, sorry if that was really uh, wordy there for new, for new learners, but self-management, free will is the application of self-management. And our, and our objective and goal is we want the individuals we serve to be able to apply self-management so that they can change their environment to what they want it to be like. They want to have their behavior be what they want it to be like. And so, yes, we're, we're dealing with operants where, you know, the environment is acting on us and we're responding to the environment and back and forth. We go back through the cycle, the ABC, ABC, ABC. And we also have some MOs in there too. But the long and short of it is like true behavior change comes when the individual reflects on something and then implements change within their life. And that reflective characteristic, as far as we know, is pretty unique to humans. And so why would we want to 
deprive that of, of others by our practice. If our practice is being non-reflective and it's not creating somebody who has that access to free will. Yeah, you know, as you're talking, I'm getting chills, which is because what you said touched on um, some of the, you know, beliefs about how PTSD forms in people. Um, one of the pieces is how much control did they have to um, get out of a traumatic scenario? So if someone's in a potentially traumatic scenario, um, and something happens, how much power do they have to leave versus continue to re-experience it? And if we can exert some um, choice in our environments, then we reduce that potential for trauma, I think. Um, you know, just, and that's, that's observational. Um, it's not diagnostic, <laughs> of course, but you know, when, when we say we wanna be trauma-informed, a big piece of trauma-informed is allowing people the opportunity to decide what they want out of their own lives and give them the tools to achieve it. Yeah. Um, oh. oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, okay, so now we, we know a little bit more about reflective behavior change. Um, what's a good starting point for, so we both have students who are listening and we also have uh, established behavior analysts and newer behavior analysts. So this is kind of a, this is a good thing because we're, we're looking for, we're, we're looking to try to influence a, a broad audience um, yeah. of folks. Uh, and so I, I'm really excited. I want to learn this stuff too. How can I be more reflective in my behavior? Okay. So um, I think one, one thing is really learn about this idea of stimulus equivalence um, and how it relates to relational frames. Um, so building our connections between ourselves um, our environment, the things we're learning, and start looking for ways to apply it. So, and I'll say start out with testing your own private behaviors. So use, um, you know, basically educators will call it metacognition, but we're going to think about our thinking and we're going to be able to operationalize what it is we're thinking and feeling. Um, and I've seen this do so much good for when I was working with, um, kiddos who were engaging in self-harm, um, not the self-harm like stimming that can result in self-harm, self-harm, but, um, like non-suicidal self-injury. So teenagers who are maybe cutting themselves or burning themselves. Um, and I was not treating the underlying mental illness, um, or suicidal, um, adjunct suicidal um, reversals or things that might be going on. But, um, but I was just working with teaching communication skills. So these were primarily neurotypical teenagers who um, had typically under, uh, undergone trauma experiences who um, did not have the words to talk about what they were thinking about and what they were feeling. Um, so we started just like connecting like feelings words to, um, to colors. So like, what color are you feeling today? And I had like a, a deck of, um, paint chips from the hardware store that they'd pick the color that resonated with them today. They'd named the color and then they'd named the feeling that went with it. Um, so, you know, we have like, we have existing relational frames that like blue is sad <laughs> or, 
you know, red is angry, but it was open-ended. They could choose any color. Um, and why is this particular shade of red resonating with you today and how are you feeling? And getting them to just engage in conversation about their feelings. Um, so being able to think about our own private behaviors and identify them, I think is, is the starting place. Um, but then start making those connections to, from ourselves to others or to the world or to our environments. Can I describe the connections and equivalences that are happening around me? And so that's getting down to specific and observable operational definitions of behaviors, of environmental conditions. Um, and can I then make some conditional discriminations about what is happening around me? So I, I actually have a, a, an example of, of this observing of private events for me that happened yesterday and, and how this is changing my behavior moving forward. Um, may I share that? Yeah, of course. Okay, so I uh, have a medical condition where I need to donate blood pretty regularly um, right now because I'm trying to get um, certain metrics to a, a safe threshold I'm donating weekly um, under doctor's orders. And so um, I have a lot of experience donating blood and, and plasma and things like that over, over the years because, you know, college student and all that other stuff. And I want to help people. Um, so I am very aware of my body and what a um, phlebotomist should or be, should, shouldn't be doing in relation to me specifically. My veins are kind of annoying and, and weird compared to most other people's. And uh, I'm not a fan of being a pincushion. <laughs> uh, well, uh, when they like are in with the needle and start wiggling it around. Oh, so much. <laughs> not fun. Um, so yesterday I, I go and I, and I inform the phlebotomist who is going to be taking care of things for me about my unique vein setup. And I let them know that this particular vein on this part of my arm is going to be easier. You're going to be more successful. Please go for that one. And then I immediately started feeling incredibly nervous and anxious. And I started reflecting on that. And, the, and I was like, why am I feeling this? Oh, because she didn't acknowledge me. There was no, okay. There was kind of this, this kind of little smirk on her face. And then she turned away without acknowledging me. And then I was like, so I started feeling more nervous and I was like, I bet she's going to go for the spot that I told her to avoid. And she did. And I got stuck three different times, including one time in that wiggle state where it was not fun and quite painful. And when they do that, there's an increased chance of nerve damage. So I was feeling quite anxious, frustrated, and angry. Um, and and uh, I resolved at that point moving forward, that never again will I allow a phlebotomist to disregard my instructions because it's my body. Mm -hmm. And I have a right to tell them no. And I will be polite but firm in saying, I told you do not go there. You will listen to me. This is my body. You do not have permission. It is your responsibility as a phlebotomist to listen to your patients. I understand you have quite a bit of training. 
But if you disregard me in this, then I want somebody else. Yeah. And moving forward. So that's something that if I had not been reflective, I would have instead left the donation center with low key anger. Um, probably would have knowing about my, um, my behavior history probably would have been a little bit more aggressive in my driving probably would have been a little bit more snippy with other people because I wasn't, wasn't being reflective of my internal events, but now I have an action plan. I know how to proceed forward. Um, I understand that they have their behavior learning history and maybe hopefully I can influence that person, the phlebotomist who's not listening to, to listen, because I'm going to try to be kind in my correction. But at the end of the day, my bodily autonomy is my bodily autonomy. So I have every right to say pass. Yeah, absolutely. Can I dive into the scenario a little bit and show Please. what I, what I mean by, um, or expand on, on being reflective? Please. Um, so if you take the scenario, can you identify a conditional discrimination that you made? Um, I'd say probably the, the first thing that was an indicator was that that lack of acknowledgement. There was no echoing back or confirming, whereas for the phlebotomists who have listened to me. And by the way, the phlebotomists who have listened to me, it's not a hundred percent success rate in them getting it right. Okay. So I acknowledge that there is room for human error, but the very fact that the other phlebotomists, even if there was error acknowledged back to me led to different outcomes um, because there was communication. So that was, that was probably the first one, but the, the one that made it abundantly clear that this person wasn't listening to me is that they went straight for the crook of my elbow mm -hmm. and started applying the iodine in that spot. And it's like, Oh, okay. So definitely disregarding what I asked. Yeah. So, and there were actually like three or four conditional discriminations. You know, one is just discriminating for yourself, which veins to go for. Maybe oh, yeah. which angle, right? Um, and then from reading her body language and her verbal behaviors toward you, you were able to, you know, assess that she's she's not accepting your communication. Um, and then you also identified a relational frame that I picked up on, which is that if they do it wrong, then this potential bad thing could result nerve damage. Um, and so your um, private behaviors, your feelings of anger or worry are influenced also by that um, connection you've made to what if they do it wrong? What if I have nerve damage that can happen? That's something that's been paired for you. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the agreement in the blood donation that they're not responsible for any nerve damage. Yeah, so then it's on you when you uh -huh. try to stop them. Um, so... So, the, the literature I have to review every single time I go to donate, every <laughs> single time. I'm very aware yeah, of this. <laughs> and, and you're reading it every time, so, so gold star for them. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so and this is something that I might do with, um, with my students or with my supervisees, is we may take a scenario like that and say, um, what, what can we identify in this scenario? What's the target behavior? 
what's the SDE? Um, and, and for you, what was the SDE for, um, you know, that, that there's an aversive experience coming up was she's putting the iodine in, on the wrong spot. Um, and so we can take these interactions happening around us and start breaking them down. And for me, this is important, especially because I tend to be um, coming from a position of power relative to most of my clients. Mm -hmm. um, so if I can't take behavior analysis and apply it to my own life and experiences, then who am I to wield it on their lives? Um, if behavior analysis applies to um, the children that I work with, then it applies to me. And I have that same responsibility to use it um, for good and not evil that, it, that I would do for myself. Um, so you're saying um, we would probably define that as like self-advocacy. We, we want Brian to be able to self-advocate and um, more forcibly express that you're not consenting when they're mm -hmm. not following your instructions about what's okay with your body. Um, and that would be, you know, a, a great goal for many of our clients who have a hard time speaking up for themselves, who, um, you know, it could be communication related, it could be trauma history related, that um, even learned helplessness, that when you speak up for yourself and you don't get an outcome, so then what? Um, and taking that and reflecting on, you know, how does, how does that interact with what my clients go through? And how can I make sure I'm not being that person with my clients? Well, and this is one of the things that I've been working on with some, some of the parents that I've been working with is, so we, we're, these parents I'm thinking of have gotten really good at identifying the functions of behavior. And as a result, their, their parenting has improved. I, I like to call it parent coaching, not parent training, because parents already know how to be parents. And I'm not so arrogant is to assume that I am going to train them how to be a parent. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm coaching them. And so their, their parenting has already improved. They're already making some amazing changes. Um, but the thing that we worked on most re recently was um, if the function of the behavior is escape, we're not trying to stop them from escaping. We're trying to give them a way to escape that is pro-social, mm -hmm. right? Unless, of course, the escape that they're trying to escape from is something that really they, the other individual has no right to demand of them, right? So, yeah. and, and, and from the very get-go with, with, with communication with parents, one of the things that we've been, I've been talking with them about is consent and making sure that that individual has the right to be able to express what they want and don't want. Um, talking about how preferences, like, yeah, of course, there's some limitations that we have to fall in. Like, no, we can't be playing video games all day, right? That's that's pretty straightforward. Um, that that video games themselves are a fun behavior trap, and I've fallen into that uh, when I when I left home. I, I I definitely had a day or two where I neglected everything else and just played video games and then realized that that, that affected me in a negative light. But I had self-management skills at the time to be able to detect that. So we have to weigh those things, especially if we're talking about adolescents and children uh, and teenagers, because we're trying to teach them these skills. But the flip side of it is um, like 
we want them to be able to express what they're interested in doing and pursue those things. Um, so long as they're not causing harm to themselves or others. Sure. But then when they hit adulthood, what if they want to do it and it causes harm to themselves? What if the harm is, is circumstantial harm? Like, I don't know. Sometimes I choose to spend an hour playing video games instead of working out. Technically I'm causing harm to myself. So am I allowed to do that? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, you know, there was that article that was published a few years back on, on the right to habilitation and ab about taking too many naps, eating too many donuts. I'm botching the title. But yeah, I mean, if, if I want to avoid something, you know, could I call in sick? Could I, mm -hmm. um, you know, could I take a week off of, of work or school and just play video games if I wanted to? Sure, I could. I can eat ice cream for dinner. I can do a lot of stuff and you know historically it's kind of like you know because i'm an adult now i can do that yeah but uh but why why is adulthood or why is being neurotypical or um an able-bodied person the qualifier that makes it so we can sometimes do behaviors that maybe aren't good for us Yeah, and that got that dives into some fun territory that I'm I'm hoping to to explore a little bit more, but, but maybe it, not for today. <laughs> but maybe <laughs> not for today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but I think it dives into values, and I think it dives into. I, I'm actually planning on doing a podcast with my business partner who introduced me to these ideas um, on, on moral foundation theory, which is a, a social psychology theory. Um, so spoiler, spoilers, there's a, a podcast upcoming where we're talking about, um, oh, come on, brain. Um, we're going to be talking about socially significant in relation to another psychological theory and trying to operationally define what socially significant is through moral foundations theory. So, but the, 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 the point being that like, this is a, this is a fun exploratory topic and it has a lot, I think, to do with values and what the, the practitioner values and how the practitioner is trying to convey those values. And that, that makes it kind of tough because we're not supposed to be pushing our values on other people. We can definitely model a value and say, hey, this is a value that I value, and I would love it if you valued it too. But the flip side of it is, is that as practitioners in, in human services, as somebody who has intense amounts of power, because, you know, okay, I'm neurodiverse, I'm autistic, I'm a BCBA, but regardless of whether or not of, of the case of my neurodiversity, I am still in a position of power and authority. I'm in a position of privilege. And so it is, it is unethical. It is, dare I use this term? I feel, I feel very strongly I should. It is wrong for me to say my values must be your values. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it's, I think it's appropriate for me to say, hey, this is something that I value. And if you wish to value it too, here's why. Mm -hmm. um, or, or to offer opportunities to explore values mm -hmm. and to be able to, you know, make those connections about what the different values may 
mean or not mean examples and non-examples. Um, and I want to give, I want to give your listeners some tools. So I, I would say okay. the one study tip that I really recommend for doing this is getting a, a bullet journal or a notebook and start observing situations that happen. And then maybe once a day, pull it out, write down a scenario that happened and then break it down. What was the behavior? What was um, the SD for the behavior? What was the consequence? What was the function? And, and sometimes that's as far as we go, but go farther. What was the MO? What environmental events precipitated this behavior? And do it with your own behaviors. Do it with your um, family members' behaviors. Do it with the traffic behaviors you see. Um, things that happen at work um, or even things that you see happening on TV. I did a really fun one yesterday with a study group. We were breaking down um, Trey Young's uh, behaviors in the NBA playoffs um, when the Hawks were playing um, against the Knicks and, and what was going on there. What different, um, what different interactions were happening that made that get so dramatic? Um, and it, it was really, it's really fun. I enjoy doing it, but it helps you to really see what's going on around you and just start practicing, identifying and making those connections and, and sketching out some of the relational frames that influence your uh, perceptions of the event. Um, and then use that as a study tool because um, I don't want to give spoilers for the exam and it's been so many years I probably couldn't, but you know, recognizing that if you can take an exam question and sketch out the behavioral principles, then it's easier for you to make that discrimination of which answer is the right answer when you're stuck. Okay. Um, so I would, I would just recommend doing that as, as a practice. Um, I still do it even outside of studying for the exam, just because I want to get better at understanding myself and the world around me. Um, well, and that, that links it into an idea. So relational frames coming in here. Um, there's a, there's a term, I'm a bit of a wordsmith. I love, I love exploring and understanding words. Um, no, I'm not an English person or a linguist, but, but I, I love the discovery and that word that I discovered a few years back is a word, um, sonder, which means to, um, come to a realization or acknowledge that the person that you interact with, even if it's just once, or even if you're just passing them on the highway, going the opposite direction has as unique and complex a life as you have. Mm. Yeah. And that that's a wonderful realization that you come to. And so it sounds like this reflective practice is kind of an, a way of applying sondering if you're doing it for another person. And, and of course, when you're doing it for yourself, then you're, you're being reflective on your own behavior, but that's kind of fun to, to think of that as a way of, of, of practicing the act of sondering. Yeah, and I, I think it invokes a responsibility to check our biases. Mm. Um, there's a, a very uh, common cognitive bias that psychologists call the fundamental attribution error, which is the bias, um, it's a type of a self-serving bias that um, if I did something, it's because the situation required it and um, it was the best choice I could make given 
given all the stuff that was happening. Um, but if someone else does the same behavior, I'm going to perceive it to be a reflection of their character, not of the contingencies that are that are working on them. Um, and we see this happen all the time with all sorts of things. But um, as, as a common example, I would say, like if you're walking down a hallway carrying a stack of books, someone else comes plowing down the hallway, their shoulder bumps into yours, the books go flying, and they just keep on going down the hall. Um, and what are, you, what are you thinking about this person's, like, what's the character judgment we make when they just slam into us, our stuff goes flying, and they just keep going. They don't stop. They don't apologize. They don't offer to help. That jerk, that so-and-so, that insert ex expletive, 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 <laughs> expletive. Yeah. <laughs> what is your problem? And, you know, if, if the scenario is flipped, though, if it's, I just got a call that a loved one has been in an accident and I'm going down that hall too quickly, um, tunnel vision to get to the hospital as soon as possible. And I might peripherally be aware that I bumped something, but it's not important right now. And if you knew that about me, when I slammed into you, would you have a different level of compassion or understanding? Um, would you still be thinking expletives or would your heart sort of be sinking and, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I hope their person is okay. Um, but we don't offer that compassion to others when we don't know the circumstances. And I think that's, that's one piece with reflective practices, getting to where we don't take those instantaneous biases and um, act on them or let that train of thinking go down. It happens for me a lot when someone cuts me off in traffic. My first thought is like, they're a sociopath. They, they don't care if they die. They don't care if I die. <laughs> well, but maybe not, right? Like maybe there's something going on. So this is one of my favorite concepts that I like to take from ACT, acceptance, commitment, therapy, and or training, um, and, and apply and, and I haven't really encountered anyone else who's done this, but that isn't to say that nobody else has done this. Um, but the, the concept is self as context, right? So it's, it's seeing yourself in your context. An example of the opposite of self as context is self as content. So if I were to say, I'm an angry person, that's self as content versus if I say, I am a person who's experiencing anger, that is self as context. Well, what if you take self as context as an idea and you apply it to another person? So yeah. then when you're taking self as context or, or in context application or maybe in context assessment and you apply it to the other person, then a little bit more compassion comes in, a little bit more understanding, um, Here's a here's a wonderful example. So uh, I have a very good friend who's German, and he and I had some really good conversations. And um, once we became very close, I asked him, "So, where was your grandfather or great grandfather during World War II?" And he told me about how his I believe I believe it was his great grandfather was in the German army. And he had joined the Nazi party um, and 
told me all about this different, different stuff. And I was like, wow, why would he do that? And then because I was open to hearing his story, he was able to tell me a little bit about, cause he had asked these same questions um, about how um, prior to the forming of um, the Nazi party and the, and Adolf Hitler coming to power that his family was actually struggling quite a bit. And that when he joined the party, it wasn't because he was joining because he believed, but because it was the thing that others around him pressured him into doing and that he was pressured into joining the German army as well. And that he was just a, a person acting within his environment. And at the time, I didn't have the behavior analytic ideas to help me see all the things that were acting on him. But now I do. And, and it's incredibly fascinating to me now because now I can see this person who I've never met, will never meet because he's since passed and see him in his context and be like, okay, so he joined and participated in an organization that definitely was doing very bad things. Mm-hmm. Like there's no question. And he probably justified doing bad things within that context. I don't know, but he was within his environment operating within it. And so instead of automatically labeling somebody who's in participating in an organization, that's hurtful, harmful, those sorts of things, um, reference to podcast on cults <laughs> for that. Like if someone's stuck within a cult now, instead of being, condemnatory to them uh i can start asking those questions of trying to put them in context and see them from their context and interestingly um the individuals who do a lot of work with helping people get out of cults uh that's effectively what they're doing is they're trying to see the person within their context and see and help help them to discriminate to be aware of the conditions that they're living in so that they can extract themselves. It's not forcing somebody out of, uh, out of those harmful organizations. It's giving them the knowledge and the information so that they can make the decision to leave or not. So. Yeah, um, and, and this is making me wanna go down a road here, but um, <laughs> I was listening to um, a podcast last night it was a podcast by Gina Colvin and Lindsay Hanson Park and they were talking about generational trauma systems and how sometimes interrupting those chains of behavior that have perpetuate from from birth but going back into your past and into your future that these patterns of like um you know child sexual abuse happen in families and the problem is that so many of the perpetrators were also victims mm-hmm. and and so many like there's so many layers that for people to disrupt that system requires implicating themselves and so the response cost is too high mm. um and you know i mean that's a that's a thought to mull over too i mean we could get really into mapping out some of those frameworks but i think that for ourselves can we say can we have that you know professional humility to say about ourselves what 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 harm have i caused to others because we've all caused harm to others mm-hmm. none of us are um immune um 
and can I can I acknowledge it and can I better myself? Well, and I, I'd like to add that if you're able to catch the harm that you're causing to others quickly and you're able to go to the individual that you have harmed and take ownership of it and be remorseful in a true manner of like, I'm going to make a change, um, that, that actually has amazing outcomes for the benefit of the relationship and the benefit of the outcomes of the, the, the work that you're doing with that person. Um, and, and I'm talking about not just with, with highly vocal people, but also high, uh, non-vocal individuals. Um, it sounds like I might have been practicing something along these lines and it, thanks to ACT, uh, me, my training and, and learning in ACT. Um, and I can think of at least two scenarios, one with a highly vocal individual and one with a, a non-vocal individual where I caught myself. It, it was a day or two later in one case. And in the other case, it was almost immediately. Um, actually, I can think of three now uh, <laughs> where um, I caught myself and I went to that individual and I profusely apologized without excusing, saying, I was wrong. I am sorry. How can I make it better? Or I will do this to make it better if it's clear that what, what, what I need to do. Um, and interestingly, the impact of the quality of services that I provided increased the outcomes for learning and acquisition of skills improved drastically for the individuals in each case. Um, and I think, uh, I think granted, I don't have a lot of data to be able to support this, but I hypothesize that a big part of that was I took ownership. Yeah. I own my behaviors. You know, I can, I can excuse, I can say, well, this happened to this and that happened to that and those sorts of things. And this actually recently happened also at an IEP meeting where I screwed up. Um, so, you know, there, there you go, another scenario. And when it was, when the, the mess up that I made was brought to my attention, my first thoughts were to, well, this is happening and these people are making this decision. And my second thought was, I can't believe these people that like, I'm trying to be here to help them and they're being jerks about this. And then my third oh, thought was, jerk, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then my third thought is, well, did you mess up or not? Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, I messed up. So I, I may or may not have surprised the individual who brought this to me. I don't know, but the, the, those, those first, second, third thoughts, they happened very quickly up here in, in my noggin, you know, or wherever it is cognition occurs. <laughs> and I, I came to the conclusion that the best path forward for the values that I wish to live and the outcomes I wish to see is to take ownership of my behavior. And it's painful. It hurts. Yeah. But you know, what's worse is suffering through that, nonstop justification, circle back, circle back, circle back, uh, rumination slash uh, perseveration of that other person screwed up and they need to take ownership of it. Um, 
I'll say it before and I'll say it again. Jocko Willick's TED Talk on radical self-ownership. Fantastic TED Talk. I highly recommend it. Um, if you haven't had a chance to, to watch it, um, best 15 minutes you can spend on understanding from a perspective that he presents uh, owning yourself and being accountable for your own behaviors. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we underestimate the power of a sincere apology. Yeah. And we're frightened of, and this is going so minimalistic, but we're, we're frightened of the shame at being in the wrong. And so if we acknowledge it, then we have to sit with that. Um, and it's painful. I will say, uh, I, I can't go into specifics, but I will say I, I have a similar scenario where um, I didn't feel that I had done anything wrong. I truly could not remember the scenario that the person was describing, but mm. their experience was real to them. Like that's what they experienced. And so I apologize profusely for, you know, being a part of that experience. And there, I have such a tremendously positive relationship with this person now. And I think if I had not been able to give a sincere apology, like, even though I could not remember having done what they believed I had done, um, you know, and, and uh, I don't know, it was, it was incredibly healing for both of us, I think. And this person now is one of my very best friends. Well, and I guess to take it a little bit out of the mentalism, um, although I, I don't think there's any problem with, with starting with mentalism. I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I feel like you're, what you're doing is you're tacting your experiences and, and you're trying to, to, to define them, but we don't necessarily always have to go deep, 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 but for the sake of that, um, I think that based off of culture and based off of uh, preferences of organisms, we have a, a learning history of admitting that you're wrong is aversive. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> read the book, Mistakes Were Made, and not, but not by me. And <laughs> uh, for, for, for some great examples of, of culturally not admitting that we're wrong. <laughs> and then stick all the way through to the end because at the very end, the, the authors, the last third to fourth of the book, it gives examples of, of, of leaderships, uh, leadership where people do admit mistake and how the outcomes change as a result of that. So it's a fantastic book. Um, but also uh, I believe that, and this is all hypothesis, but I believe based off of some of the research that's been done in other branches of psychology, that there's also um a preference towards being right, mm. uh, towards, towards not having our perceptions questioned or being inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I attribution error, that's a good example right there. Um, same thing goes for, uh, oh, I'm trying to, um, remember the name of it. Uh, cognitive dissonance. There we go. Cognitive dissonance is another way of uh, another 
theory or phenomenon that's been observed where basically we're holding two separate ideas at the same time. And even though they're not um, connecting and, and they, they just can't be justified with each other, we're, we still are finding a way of making them work together. Um, another yeah. example. Oh, that, sorry. Oh, sorry. Just that it's more comfortable to change our behaviors to or change our beliefs to match the behavior mm-hmm. um, than to change the behavior to match our beliefs. Yeah. You know, and, and that's resolving that. There's a really great quote um, that I actually, you know, align with this idea of reflective practice, but it's by Bill Drury. He was a, a professor and an author. And, and he said, when your views on the world and your intellect are being challenged, and you begin to feel uncomfortable because of a contradiction that you've detected that's threatening your, your current model of the world, pay attention because that's when you're about to learn something. That That's really cool. I didn't know that, that someone had said something like that because I'd come to some, a similar conclusion on my own. Um, I had learned that whenever I start feeling an internal event response of, um, frustration, anger, uh, and, 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 and anxiety, that that's usually a signal that there's something that I'm not quite picking up on. And so I need to dive deeper to understand it. Whereas before, and I use the example of, I am an angry person as self as content earlier, because that's what I used to think. That's, that's what I was trained to think. That was what my environment taught me to think. Um, but it, it happened, the, the shift happened when um, my dear friend Bob asked me the question, Brian, why are you mad? When we were talking about something, this was probably 12 years ago. And I went, I'm mad? And he's like, yeah, you're mad. Why are you mad? I'm like, no, I'm not. And he's like, you are mad, dude. Your voice is angry. Your body language is angry. Your face is angry, everything. And I'm like, wait, what? And I had to, I had to reflect. I had to, to stop, pause and actually ask those questions. And uh, I discovered that whenever I'm starting to feel that way, I'm in a state of helplessness because either I don't comprehend something or I truly am truly helpless. I don't have any way of controlling it. And so I'm trying to exert control on my environment. I'm trying to either escape, avoid access, um, you know, attention, all those things. So then I, I created a practice within myself of whenever I start feeling that emotion and I'm starting to catch myself faster and faster and faster as I'm moving along. Sometimes I'm not so great. Other times I am. We're human. We make mistakes. Um, but now that's a, that's a SD for, Oh, it's time to learn something. Yeah. And, and I think if we, know why something's happening it becomes so much easier to cope with it mm-hmm. you know and and you know our impulse is maybe that experiential avoidance you know that i'm uncomfortable so i'm out of here i'm not yeah. going to engage with this scenario um but like i think sometimes it's it's that unknown piece so like i got my covid shot um, first dose was pretty much fine, sore arm, second dose, I got sick for a day and a half. Um, mm. but I knew that that was the pattern. So like I was sick, 
was laying in bed, couldn't really do anything. I'd think I was okay. I'd get up and be like, nope, I'm not okay. Um, but I, I knew it was going to wear off. I knew it was a reaction to the shot. I knew it was normal. So I wasn't um, upset about it. Um, where if I were sick um, or in pain or something, and that's my body telling me something's wrong, you know, something's going wrong, you need, you need to get to the, the bottom of why you're in pain or uncomfortable, like the anxiety maybe behaviors start because, um, because I don't know why. So then I might engage in like some reassurance seeking like Dr. Google or, or maybe a real doctor or something. But when you understand why it's happening, then it's like, okay, I, I can take this in stride. And I think that's why for a lot of people getting a diagnosis is really valuable because it resolves some of that, you know, uncertainty. Am I making this all up? Is it all in my head? Am I just not good at coping with stuff other people cope with or you know, once you get a label for something, you can say, okay, this is why this is happening to me. And, and that um, understanding makes it less aversive. But so, so to play devil's advocate for a moment, <laughs> because I think it's important to play devil's advocate <laughs> in this thing, at least. But what if, what if we can't find out why? What if there's just nothing in the environment that can answer that question? of why, um, even if we go through all the effort of doing all the research and, and all the breaking it down and all the things, what is the next step if we can't get the answer to why? Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people are living right now. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the reality with lots of folks with chronic illnesses, autoimmune conditions that maybe haven't even been discovered, but they know something's wrong and um, even some of the like gaslighting that goes on with the medical community toward people, you know, coming in for help and, and being treated as though they're drug seeking or something. Um, and I, I think that, you know, ACT has some, has some good stuff there for, you know, being able to sit with uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and being able to, um, I don't know. I, I love the, I've, I've never been part of a 12 step program, but some of my uh, degree programs have required me to go and participate in 12 step meetings. So, you know, understanding the frameworks and things. And I do love the serenity prayer and I use it when I'm in that scenario where I just don't know. Um, and I need to just accept the things I can't change and maybe delineate the difference um, and something you said earlier about our, our self-serving biases and our, our beliefs, like when you're talking about sondering, um, being able to understand that I'm not actually capable of fixing everything yeah. in my life, um, you know, and, and I do think that's harder. I think when we have the ability to explain it, then that relieves a lot of discomfort. Yeah. Well, and part of the reason I asked that devil's advocate question is because we humans have this intense drive to explain and, and to make things work to the point that we come up with explanations that are uh, superstitious, that, that, are, that are not true, or that are maybe partially true, but only circumstantially. Confirmation bias comes in right there. It's like, 
there's been so many times when I've, when I've told somebody a piece of information um, and, and they go, oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's why I was doing it. And, I'm, and, and in the conversation previous, they, I, I had probed and they had no clue that that was why they were doing it and it was working. Um, a good example, foot baths. So those, those ionizing foot baths. Oh yeah. Um, so an individual whose name will remain not shared because I don't wish to cause harm to this person um, was telling me that doing an ionizing foot bath detoxes you and um, put your feet in here and watch the water turn dark. Uh, and, and that's all the toxins coming out of your body. And so I was sneaky. I did it. And then I did an experiment. The next time I was at that person's house, I said, could I do that again? And they're like, yeah, I'm busy, but you can go ahead and do it. And I just watched the ionizing foot bath without my feet in it. And the, the, the water turned dark Whoa. without my feet in it. And I was like, huh? So, so this, <laughs> so, so the explanation, the cause and effect happens no matter whether my feet are in it or not. So it, it probably isn't detoxifying. So then years later, I find out about research on grounding and the negative ions coming from the earth into our body and helping eliminate free radicals in our body. So therefore alleviating inflammation. Um, and I share this information with that person knowing full well that this person was pushing ionizing foot baths as a detoxing thing. Mm -hmm. And their response was, yeah, that's the reason why I do foot baths. And I was like, but I thought you said that you did it because of detoxification. Well, yeah, that too. But like it, it, it does the whole thing that you said right there with the free radicals and stuff. And I'm like, okay, they're making it fit within their framework. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. it, and, and it's, it's, I think it's important to try to avoid being caught in that. I'm creating a fallacy to create an explanation um, framework because if we do that then that's where we start creating superstitious behavior and that's where we start creating conditions where it's like well i'm going to keep doing the same thing over and over even though it's obviously not working because it did work in the past yeah and then, so, so like an overgeneralization really like we're taking we're, we're creating mistake in relational frames yeah well it's like the teacher who scolds the kids because in the past it's worked and that some kids see that he scolded in the past that that has successfully worked as a punisher towards the acting out in class. So therefore they're going to continue doing it. And now they come across the student who is being maintained their the, the behavior acting out in class is being maintained by the attention. And so the intensity of scolding is increasing while the behavior of the individual is increasing, thus creating an aversive and abusive condition yeah so yeah and, and sometimes we can come up with an explanation but sometimes we can't and i sorry i yeah no i agree with you i i, I really like to ask these questions because i don't I, I want i want people to be equipped with skills and i want me to be equipped with those skills too <laughs> yeah absolutely um sorry i digressed a bit yeah, so I'm trying to think how to get back on track. I want to give your listeners some tools for being reflective and intentional with their study. Okay. Um, so I mentioned the bullet journals, which that's my top tip. Um, but 
Um, I want to dive a little bit into some of the research that's out there. And some of this is old research, but it's research that has been um, replicated and replicated and replicated and called different things by different researchers. Um, but it's really effective for um, increasing the speed that we're learning. And why I think this is important is um, you know, learning ABA is like learning another language. Mm-hmm. We're having to create those equivalencies between terms and definitions and then between uh, lay people's language for when we're doing that parent coaching um, or working with, um, you know, people outside the field. We don't want to look like a jerk yeah. <laughs> with, with our jargon. And then I've found, because I've worked in these different environments, like there's different jargon in uh, education for the same stuff. We're both deriving from a lot of the same foundational research, so but we call it different stuff. Um, and then also like human services or juvenile justice, we call things different things. And sometimes that's based on like what's written in the case law is what we call it. So um, so I wanna go into some, some tips for, um, the discrete trial part of learning. Um, I'm going to drop a link in the chat box for I you. I still have that a document up actually, but I didn't read it. it. Yeah, I still okay. have it, but I didn't read okay. it. <laughs> I didn't read it. Okay, so I want to pull in a couple pieces, and this is going to that idea of experiential avoidance. When okay. when stuff is aversive, we don't want to do it. Um, and kind of thinking about when. People are studying for the exam. The, the top advice I see given to them is use ABA on yourself um, to learn the terms. Um, and they bring up things like staff meds, like the BDS modules um, that are really um, drill and kill, right? <laughs> like, yeah. We're just going to run these drills. And um, and I think that those methods have some good outcomes if you can stand to do them, right? So maybe we, we think about how we're doing it and use those tools in a really intentional way. Um, because I will say I, I did both studying for the exam and my stack of flashcards for my staff meds that I made was like a stack like this high. And I was like, stay all fast for a minute every day. That's more than a minute to get through this, this stack. I, um, I, I tried doing that myself and I just took the nope train right out of Nopeville and right on uh, right out of Nope Nation. I just noped it. No, I didn't want to do it. It was too painful. I couldn't do it. It's insufferable sometimes going through these trials. And so, and then also some of the stuff, it's just too easy to like bootleg your reinforcement, you mm-hmm. know, like, so you see those those uh, memes going around social media where somebody's got the Cooper book and they've got like a candy bar every third page. Um, and, and knowing myself, like I can read that page 10 times and maybe get nothing out of it because my mind's wandering. <laughs> um, or I could be like, this is insufferable. I'm eating this candy bar anyway. Um, so I want to um, give a little bit of research backing and then a little bit of what to do about it to, okay. um, you know, to, to help your listeners think about intentional studying, really getting the, the bang for their buck with regard to their time investment um, and thinking um, efficient practice rather than just quantity of practice. 
Um, so there's a piece of, of learning research and in uh, behavior analysis, this is really exemplified by the work of Greg Hanley. Um, so when you think of Greg Hanley, what's like the buzz phrase that, that comes up a lot of times? My way. My way, yes. And before we can teach my way, we need to have the learner in what kind of a state? Um, uh, correct me if I get it wrong, but happy, relaxed, and receptive. Is that um, it? So close. Happy, relaxed, and engaged. Happy, relaxed, engaged. Okay. So, yeah. So when our learner's happy, relaxed, and engaged, then we can reliably predict they're not going to engage in sleep behaviors um, from us. Right. Yeah. And then we start applying demands. He would plug in the omnibus man, the my way um, to allow an appropriate escape response um, and then managing rapport while managing the difficulty of the task. Um, and similar themes coming out of education research, they call it stuff like the zone of proximal development or the ZPD, like when the students in the ZPD um, then they're going to be happy, relaxed, and engaged. Essentially, they're going to be learning. Um, or they also call it um, instructional level. Um, and I think the tricky part is somewhat of identifying what is that happy, relaxed, and engaged. Like, how do we predict it and how do we manage it through managing our task? So Hanley's, uh, Hanley's work, um, it's like instantaneous. As you see the resistance, you pull back the task, right? And we're looking to reinforce those like immediate um, resistance. So we don't let it go to the tantrum. When the eye starts to twitch, telling us the tantrum might be coming, then that's when we offer the omnibus man. Um, but thinking about defining what puts somebody in or out of that state um, a lot of times there's this real feeling of like, I know it when I see it, or I know my learner, so I, I know when they're in that state. Um, and we're thinking about ourselves. Um, so for ourselves, it, it might be like we could operationalize it, like when, I, when my mind starts to wander, I'm not engaged in this task. Um, but there's some predictors that we can set up in advance that are going to really control whether we stay engaged with the task. And we've kind of identified one already. If it's taking too long um, or it's taking too much work to set up, we're just not going to do it or we're not going to do it very well. Yeah. Um, and, and I see that with um, learners who are studying for the exam and they start down staff meds and they get their Cooper book and it's got all the tabs in it. And they spend a lot of time setting up the tabs in their book or they they spend a lot of time making their initial set of SAFMIDS cards, but then they don't um, continue to use them because they're, they're burned out just getting ready. Yeah. Um, so there's a few like concrete pieces of research that tell us when we're going to be in this state. And so I'm gonna go through um, a little bit about the research and then go into like how to do it to maximize your study so that you're not having to work through um, trials upon trials of huge stacks of material to master. Um, so the first piece is working memory. So, um, and working memory is really, um, it's, it's defined like in terms of like 
giving people a set list of items and can they say it back to you? And how many discrete items can they say back to you? So that's gonna be the working definition for working memory is like how many discrete items can you repeat back um, after a period of time has passed um, and, and a short period of time, not like long-term memory, but like short-term memory. So features of working memory that have been really um, identified, this original research came out of uh, Bell, the telephone company when they were initially looking at moving from switchboard system to phone number systems, how many numbers, how many digits can a person uh, hold in their mind and recall a short time later? So if I'm gonna give you my phone number, then you're going to be able to remember it long enough to get to a piece of paper and write it down um, or to get to a phone and make the call, right? So, um, and they came up with seven digits that the average adult could hold seven plus or minus two instances of, of information in their memory and then recall a short time later. Um, we don't ask people to do this now <laughs> because we have, you know, text files. We can just like text them our number or we can, um, you know, just uh, sometimes scan with our device on their device and it just pulls it in. So we're not asking people to do phone numbers as much anymore. Um, it, and even like now the numbers have gotten longer because there's more, um, more working in that system. But as providers, we use this with our learners when we're doing listener training. Can they follow a one-step direction? Can they follow a two-step direction? Um, and the, the pieces about working memory that are important, first of all, is that when we overload it, so if we give somebody too many items to recall at once, it clears itself. So this is where you've got, you know, your list of things to go get to get in the car or something before we leave for a trip. I've got to go get all these items. And I walk back in the house and something happens. Maybe my cell phone goes off. Maybe my, maybe my pet is seeking my attention. And so I attend to that thing. And now there's that it was the last draw, now it's gone. I don't remember what my original list was. And so I have to like walk back out to the car and say, honey, <laughs> what was I going in the house for? Um, it clears itself. This happens to me all the time when I'm <laughs> sent to the grocery store to get stuff. And if it's not written down, I am going to, you can guarantee that I'm going to forget at least one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to like train my kids. I'd be like, okay, you remember these three things. You remember these three things. I've got these three things. And my daughter, when she was like four, so she had her, you know, things she was going to remember. And so we're going through our list. We're putting stuff in the car. We've got everything, I think. And so I'm like, what was on your list? What was on your list? What was on your list? And my little one goes, but mom, there's one more thing. And I was like, oh, what did we forget? She's like, we still have to get the puppy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, good try. Um, you know, but um, but we can chunk it or we can we can make up some kind of mnemonic or something to help us remember to like so we're gonna remember get a cab instead of the seven dimensions of ADA using a mnemonic would be one strategy for managing our working memory. We do that stuff all the time. So so it clears itself, it's finite. We can't train ourselves to do more um than we can do so the average adult is seven plus or minus two um you can find out what yours is by having someone give you a random list up 
of digits and see if you can repeat them back, how many you can repeat back before you start clearing. Um, and it's also developmental. So we see with our younger learners typically can do fewer. And as people get older, they get up to about 15 years old, it hits their adult level. Um, and then as they get older, um, as they hit middle age, it starts to gradually decline a little bit. Um, so it's so there's, developmental, go ahead. So there is no way to improve working memory, like at, at least as far as the research is now? Not as far as I've seen. Okay. Um, there, there is a good book called The Memory Book, and I'm, I'm blanking on the author that has a lot of good memory strategies. But this is why when we have learners who struggle with working memory, that might be something like the psychologist has identified in their cognitive testing that their working memory is lower than average. That would be where we'd like accommodate them with an IEP. So we might give them copies of the notes instead of having them uh, rely on memory. Um, or we might, we might give them like different accommodations to manage it um, because it, it typically is pretty set. Okay. Aside from aside from the development, so like a three-year-old's going to remember like maybe one item plus or minus two, but like a fifteen-year-old will be closer to the seven plus or minus two. So the memory book I looked it up real quick. It's Larry uh, Lorraine and Jerry Locus. Uh, Lorraine is spelled L O A Y N E, and Locus is L or, or maybe it's not Locus. Lucas L U C A S. Thank you. Yeah. No um, so that's a fantastic book. I recommend it to parents all the time when their kids are struggling in that, in that area, but being aware of like where our own working memory is, is going to give us a clue of how many, maybe how many of those flashcards we want to work on at a time. Um, and so, so the three features really are it's developmental. It overrides all other learning tasks. If we overload the working memory, um, in the task, we're gonna put kids out of that happy, relaxed and engaged state. We're gonna put ourselves out of that window. Um, and then another important piece that I wanna focus on is, is an old reading comprehension rule. This, this was identified back in like the 1920s or 1930s um, that when we want a learner or ourselves to understand material, then the known items needs to be like 93 to 97% of the content. So to be happy, relaxed and engaged and comprehending, we can't overload the working memory, but we also have to have um, 93 at least percent of the items in the, in the block of information we're trying to learn needs to be something we already know. So we need to be making connections to previously known stuff, introducing small amounts at a time. And um, otherwise people won't understand or be able to respond back and explain to you what it is that they've learned. So this is the exercise I'm going to have you do um, with a file that I shared with you. Um, I hope that you are comfortable reading aloud. <laughs> I have a, a, a fun little uh, learning reading challenge. I, I don't like to call it a disability anymore because it's just is what it is. So um, I guess disclaimer, so I'm, I'm probably going to stumble quite a bit and that's okay. I'm okay with being uncomfortable. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So, so I'm going to ask you to read this passage aloud and then I'm going to ask you to tell, retell what happened. Um, and it, it's putting in, some new language, some unfamiliar words. 
Okay. Um, and we'll see if that helps know, or I'm not. Curious. I'm curious how uh, how you're going to do. Okay, so I haven't opened it yet. Do you want me to read the whole thing, everything that's on the page? Yeah, it's two paragraphs. Okay, I can read so, two paragraphs. Okay. <laughs> I've been very careful, folks, not to read this ahead of time because I don't want it to change the outcomes. So let's see how I do. Okay. <laughs> Pulling it over on the screen right in front of me so that way it's front and center. Um, long Raiden's... Uh, were formed when Matthew arrived. He tried to um, fundate the amount of time it would take to get to the corn uh, verster. Vort, it would be long, plast, he would miss the game. He veraxed from the moment until the Raidens became ever longer. He decided that he would ordrul in the Raiden Opet to see Vort. It would start working more expeditiously. <laughs> oh boy. No sooner had he started <laughs> uh, Flee Jewel when it began Opet <laughs> must <laughs> I am really not having fun with this word. Mastualig. <laughs> quite hard. Matthew became disgusted, zipped up his Orna uh, forger and walked back to his car. He drove home of the Mastool. By the time he put the car in the garage, the Mastool was Rome and the Phaedos was out. Matthew was doubly disgusted now. Suddenly, he went inside to watch the game. He turned on the television set, but nothing happened. Matthew said to himself, what a lousy frol or frol. Okay, so tell me about what you just read. Um, I'm guessing that some common words were replaced with uncommon words or, or, or nonsense words. So it, what it looks like is that Matthew arrived somewhere and he was trying to do something in a certain time frame. Um, he decided that um, things weren't moving properly. So he decided that he would leave um, I'm guessing somewhere in there, it, the one of the replacement words means road. Um, so uh, maybe. Nope. Nope. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so basically by the time he arrived home, maybe there was, there was something that was going on. He tried turning on the TV and it didn't turn on. So maybe there was an electrical disruption or something of that nature. Okay. So. So you've taken a passage um, that you know uh, 90% of the words and came up with like almost completely wrong answers. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to fit it within my framework. So, I'm sure yeah, if I had so, more time, I could figure it out. Yeah. So you're doing a good job um, considering, considering, you know, that I've pushed you out of that optimal window of learning, right? You're, you're not in happy, relaxed, and engaged because the test demand is too hard. 
Um, and this is 90% though, 90% known. Um, so that would be like giving you, um, you know, a, a stack of 100 terms and you've only got nine that you don't know yet and you would struggle. Um, so I'm going to give you some clues with this package uh, passage. So um, I'm going to give you um, two words. Okay. Okay. So um, radins means lines. Um, radins means what? Lines. Lines. Okay. Like a Q, you know, to. Okay. To um, and cornvorster means ticket counter. So would you oh. be willing to read the first paragraph again and just substitute radins for lines and cornvorster for ticket counter? Okay. Long lines were formed when Matthew arrived. He tried to fin date the amount of time it would take to get to the ticket counter. Vort, it would be too long, plast he would miss the game. He varaxed for a moment until the lines became even longer. He decided that he would ordrule in the line up at to see Vort, it would start moving more expeditiously. Okay, so tell me what happened in the paragraph. So Matthew's waiting in line to get some tickets to a game. Yeah, so now you're getting you're getting uh, you know more awareness of what's going on. And based on the full passage before, you could probably now infer what happened next, even if I don't teach you any more words. Um, what do you think? So it sounds like he got impatient and left to go home yeah. and in the hopes that he could watch the game on the TV. And he got home and the TV wasn't working, so he was quite upset. Yeah, so what do you think... Um, what do you think the word, last word in the passage, crawl? Matthew said to himself, what allows you to crawl? Um, TV. Could be TV. Um, I always read it as day, like what oh. allows you day. Because, okay. Um, and, and if you look at the passage, if you, um, if you look at Mostel on the third line of the second paragraph, um, means rain. So, um, oh, so Ov is in the rain. Okay, yeah. so Ov is yeah. in the rain. So he drove home in the rain. So the more words you have, um, the more you can comprehend this passage, right? And by okay. teaching you two words, um, usually once people get two additional words in in this passage, they can figure out the rest of it. They can figure out, you know, that Orna Forger is his jacket. He zipped up his jacket. Um, I actually guessed that because zipped up when you're zipping yeah, up something. Yeah, so some context clues. And if you read this whole passage and that was your only unknown, you wouldn't struggle at all. Yeah. Um, but you notice what happened like to your fluency reading when you're reading a sentence like suddenly he went inside to watch the game. It's very fluent. Um, when you're reading a sentence that has a bunch of these nonsense words, it gets much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And your comprehension was dramatically different when you were in that um in that window of not overloading um, your uh, known to unknown words. And think about this in the context of working memory. If I were to teach you 
all of the unknown words on the page. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of them, but probably not going to dramatically overload your working memory. It would depend on the adult, whether they could um, be taught all of those words um, and be successful or whether it would just clear and they'd be unable to read it because remembering what all those words translate to would possibly overload the working memory. So, so thinking about our own learning, we want to make sure that we're not knocking ourselves out of that ideal match, um, ideal window of learning mm -hmm. by giving ourselves too many new terms at once or by overloading our working memory. So we so, can manage our own tasks basically when we're, when we're studying for the exam. So literally before this podcast started recording, I was chatting with somebody who reached out to me and I, I love it when people reach out to me and I try to give them uh, personalized attention because one, I, I want to make sure people know I'm human. No, I'm not this, this celebrity. Yeah, I've had people squee when they see me and it makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, like, no, no, I'm a person. Like if you want to sit down and enjoy a beverage or, or some yeah. food, let's do that. But anyways, um, so this person reached out to me and asked, was asking me about tips for studying. And I'm definitely going to be referring them to this podcast. <laughs> as well but um one of the one of the strategies i used was i well aside from recording these podcasts and and basically making it fluent uh talking about behavior analysis and talking about behavior analysis pretty much constantly um i, I really enjoy it but i try making it fun i try making it interesting um and one of the ways that i made it fun and interesting was but making aba memes that we're teaching ABA concepts yeah, as, as simply as possible. And I, I've kind of fallen out of the habit since I'm not studying anymore, um, but I need to get back into the habit because I want to help other people study. Uh, <laughs> it's because yeah. I want everybody to be successful. But like, so I was uh, last year, year and a month ago, um, a group of creators on um Instagram got together and we did uh, ABCs of ABA where we went through the alphabet and was, was creating ABA ABCs. And so I made one for um, motivating operation uh, and somebody asked the question, okay, but can you do this for condition motivating operations? And I was like, I don't know. And then I was like, okay, come on, challenge accepted here. Let's do, let's do this. So I made three little memes for CMOs, uh, CMOR, CMOS, CMOT. And by making those, I'm more fluent when it comes to the smotes, smotes, and all those fun ones. Uh, <laughs> and, and now I'm, it's easier for me to answer those questions, but then I recently had somebody challenge me saying, well, yeah, that's a good understanding of it, but can you go deeper? And I was like, oh, okay, here we yeah, go. <laughs> just scuba dive instead of snorkeling, right? Yeah. That's, that's what we want people to do is, is really get into it. Um, so what I'm going to recommend as, as a possible study tool um, uses this idea of working memory, not overloading our working memory, uses this idea of, um, you know, managing our, our comprehension, uh, our ability to respond fluently, um, and hopefully it's going to leave people with extra time to then go and use their bullet journals to break stuff down or uh, go make some memes 
um, that are um, exemplifying behavior analytic principles. So, so uh, this, this learning tool is called incremental rehearsal. And this was uh, researched by a guy named Macquarie et al. in 2002. So it's a little bit older, but I um, use this as the foundation for my master's um, research. And I recommend it as a strategy for saving time, but also so that like you can learn more words or more definitions, I should say, um, in a shorter period of time because you're being really intentional about how you rotate in and out the terms that you're working on. Um, so what you'll do is you'll use six words to start. So you're going to pick six behavior analytic terms and the first five are going to be five that you already know. So you're going to take five words that you know the definition could give examples for um, and one word that is new or that you want to really clarify. Um, so it might be something you have like an awareness of, like I know that's a behavior analysis word. I know it relates to motivating operations, but I don't fully know what the CMOR is. Um, and so you're going to set up a ratio of flashcards where initially, so you're gonna take your, so you're going to take your words, your new word is gonna be known as N1. Uh, or, and then your known words are gonna be K1, K2, K3. Um, and I will put this on a graphics. So if you want to include a link to it in the show notes, um, then, yeah. then it'll map it out because it's hard sometimes without a visual. But um, so you're going to do five runs through your stack of cards a day and your stack is only six cards. You're not going to go through the whole stack. Okay, so each time. So the first time you're just taking your new word, which is N1 and a known word, word which is K1. This is your first presentation. You're looking at two cards. You're going to run through your flashcard for your new word and your first known word. Then you're going to run through your stack again and you're going to do your new word and then known word one and known word two. Then you're going to go through your stack again and you're going to do new word and then known one, two, and three. So you're seeing the pattern. And then um, you're going to repeat with new word, then known words one, one through four. And then your last time through is gonna be your new word and your known words one through five. Okay, so that's day one. Um, so you've gone through a total of 20 um, different cards. Well, you've gone through a total of six different cards but only 20 presentations, but you've given yourself five repetitions with your new word, okay? Um, tomorrow, you're gonna start this over but you're going to move your new word into the known word five, or sorry, known word one position. So, um, so the next day you're getting a brand new word um, for N1, but your yesterday's N1 is now known word one, and your known word five is just going to drop out of the stack. Okay. So it's setting it up so that my my new word on Monday, I'm getting repetitions on that new word on on Monday, but then on Tuesday as well, and on Tuesday I'm bringing in a, an, another new word. So by Friday, um, all of my known words list will be words that I learned that week for Saturday because I have six words. So 
Um, so I'll be adding at least six words to my definitions vocabulary every week without ever having more than 20 discrete trials and more than six words that I'm looking at at a time. So I'm never gonna overload my working memory and I'm going to have enough comprehension capacity to understand what I'm learning and remember it. So I'm moving things from that like instant recall, short-term memory idea into the long-term. Um, and I'm keeping things in the bank long enough to have them transfer into my long-term storage. So when we say like SAF meds, we're doing say all fast minute every day. Um, we're still looking at like one minute, but we're actually increasing what's going into our long-term storage. And then from there, I would say, instead of running cards, like now you've got the name and the definition of the concept down, um, you're going to have more time to actually like dive deeper and do the scuba diving. What does it mean? What are some examples of it? How do I discriminate between an MO and an SD, for example, or between a CMOR and a CMOT? Um, and that type of practice is much more dynamic and much more gonna be engaged with um, more hands-on stuff like bullet journaling or making memes or having conversations with people. Um, but we're, we're simplifying that discrete trial piece down to only six words a day and only one new word every day. Which is more achievable. <laughs> Much more achievable. If I'm looking at, you know, a stack of six cards, I could probably, I could probably run through this incremental rehearsal program like before each time I eat. Um, and it's still a minimal amount of time and minimal amount of response effort um, as opposed to you know, the stacks that I practiced with. And I had cards on my mirror and cards in my car and cards, you know, if I was ever waiting, I was going through cards. And, um, you know, then do I become a dictionary? <laughs> do I become yeah. really understands and can flexibly apply it? Because that's what we want, right? Is flexible application, not just I can do it with one client or I can answer this question on this test, but I understand this concept and how it works. And I can give you the definition. Well, and I see the, the other application, the other way of doing it. And I've, I've seen so many people go through the process and I, I tried doing that and it was so aversive that I was just like, nope, I'm not doing yeah. it that way. It's and too hard. It, it's, it's too hard, but you know, and maybe that says something about me probably does, but the flip side of it is I, I see at people stressing themselves out to the point of, of breakdown of, of burnout in preparation for the test. Yeah. And, and I've seen so many people, um, and good on them for keeping trying, but, but fail so many times in a row and, and just keep on coming back and, and doing the same thing or maybe maybe modifying slightly in their approach. And I, and I just feel so awful for them because it's like, there's so much pain and suffering going on here. This sounds like it's a, a much more achievable, a much less stressful. I wonder how often people fail the exam because they're spending so much energy and time doing this instead of using a more optimal strategy for studying. Um, for any yeah. exam, really. Yeah, and I see this too. It's not just um, 
you know, people that are, are looking at a task and saying that's overwhelming, I'm not going to do it, but also people who have so many things going on. They're uh-huh. in graduate school, they're finishing graduate school, they are doing field work hours, they are often parents or caregivers. Uh-huh. Um, I've seen folks who are, you know, single parents working a couple of, of jobs with a um, neurodiverse child of their own. Um, maybe they went into ABA because they wanted to help their own child. Now they're working to get certified, but the demands that are already on them are incredible. So, so people, I mean, there are people who go in a really traditional route, they get their bachelor's, they get their master's, they're working as an RBT and moving up through, and then they get certified and they don't have so many competing demands, but increasingly I'm seeing people are doing this with many competing demands. Yeah. Many of our um, folks out in Pennsylvania, they've just undergone a huge um, shift in the licensing rules and agencies have to have a BCBA on staff where in, in the past they could have, you know, behavior specialists on staff. So these behavior specialists have been doing essentially the work of a BCBA, but um, th- there's a, a pressure on them to get certified ASAP so mm-hmm. that you can help keep your clinic open maybe. Um, and, and so there's, there's that pressure that, and competing contingencies that folks just need efficiency to, um, be able to have the time to really understand it too. Like we, we could, we could teach anybody terms, right. But can we teach people to flexibly apply it? And we're spending all our time learning the vocabulary. That's not efficient. Yeah. Well, and and that, that doesn't create quality care um it sounds like one of the the test takers maybe yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but so a theme that i see popping up through our conversation is we need to make sure that we're taking into account the phylogenic characteristics of an organism aka that we need to take into the biological constraints that we're working with when we're talking about learning. Um, working memory is one of them that you, you brought up and, and talked about, like, yeah, there's a, there's a limit that maybe there is a way to improve it. Maybe not. We don't know. Um, but right now, based off of what we have, let's use what the per- individual has. Don't, don't try to expect them to do something that they can't do. Like, Try expecting a dog to say, help me is really stupid because a dog can't say, help me, but a dog can bark. So you can teach the dog to bark in a certain way to tell you that it needs help or it can signal in other ways, right? A whine would be a good example. I have dogs and one of them was whining earlier and my wife took care of it. So there you go. Uh, (laughs) Mine stopped at me. She's like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, But, uh, Another thing that's coming up, and I don't know if you've heard of this concept, but I, I, I discovered it when I was trying to understand the situations where a parent will forget their child in the car. Yeah. Um, and those tragic situations where, where basically a parent will forget their kid and their kid either has major health issues or even dies. Um, and this occurred, I'd this research occurred about eight years back, I think roughly, my memory is not perfect. Uh, when something like this happened in the town that I was living in and there was this cry of 
that mother needs to be punished and this, that, and the other, and, and just so much anger and, and outrage. And I would never do that. I would never forget my child in my car. And I was curious. And so I did a little reading and found out that this was a working mom who was going to school and who was dealing with all these different things. So I started exploring further. And of course this mother was devastated um, by, by what had happened. So not, not going to turn a blind eye to the, the very human aspect of this, cause it was painful and, and suffering was definitely abounding here because of, because of a, a lapse in, in memory. Um, and so I, I researched further and came across a neurologist who actually responded to a different incident, but very similar circumstances. Um, and, he taught me about, and I can't remember the name of his YouTube channel, but he taught me about neural load and how when there's so much information coming in that, and if your if your neural load is past its limit, that something is going to be missed. And then he actually, and uh, this is again, before I jumped into behavior analysis, but he provided some behavior interventions that you can do to prevent your neural load from being overwhelmed to the point of forgetting your child in your car. So one of the things he did is he said, you could stick a mirror on your dashboard so that you can see your child. And this is actually has a positive benefit of you can continue to maintain contact and, and keep an eye on the child without putting you in danger. You can quickly glance down and see. And so when your eyes are on and, and aware of the child being present. There's less chance of you forgetting about them, especially if the child falls asleep in the back sleep seat as commonly happens because car rides are very, the droning sounds and, and kind of relaxing. Um, so the, the, that is a strategy for being aware of. And he also mentioned maybe taking an object or objects that you have to remove from the car, um, such as your purse, or a backpack or something like that and putting it next to the child. So that way, um, even if you were to step out of the car and start walking to the house, Oh, wait, I need to grab that thing. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and, Oh, there's my child. Okay. It's not going to die today. We're good. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. And I noticed one, one of the patterns I've noticed, I haven't researched it, but it seems like these things happen on days when there's a change in routine. Yes. You know, you're, you're taking the child where maybe your partner usually puts the child or, yeah. or, you know, then the nanny called out sick. And so you had to take them to childcare instead of having someone come to your house and you're not used to making that stop or, you know, and it's not part of your, it's not part of your change. So you, you know how it is with a, a change behavior, you get started and then the chain carries itself through and so you get to the end of the chain. And so, um, there's that piece too, I think of how are we using a different SD for the days when the chain is different and how are we training that chain? Yeah. And so neural load appears. So that's a little bit of a sidetrack there, but neural load appears to be another characteristic going on here. Um, and, and I'll tell you right now, I, I'm a pretty good test taker. I, I've only failed one professional test ever. Um, I've t I, I'm pretty good at taking tests because I have the good strategy. So that, that's a disclaimer there. Um, but I, I passed it my first time around. I was 
fully accepting that if I didn't, I'd have to try again. Um, and if I hadn't had my act skills, I wouldn't have been a, as successful because I almost passed out in the testing center. Uh, and if I hadn't had those, those skills, I, I probably would have passed out. So, uh, <laughs> but, but all things said, so one of the other things that, that, that learning about neural load helped me with was the importance of taking a break, the importance of letting yourself recover. Um, because I made sure to do that. And I built in recovery breaks throughout my studying time. Um, probably just spent a little bit more time recovering than I should have studying, but at the same time, it was time well spent in my opinion. Um, and then before I went to the test, my wife and I actually went on a camping trip. Um, I took a day off. So we had a three day week. We went out, went camping. I spent time in nature. I allowed myself to bring one study guide and I restricted myself to looking at it for less than an hour, an hour or less per day when I was there. So I, because, you know, I was feeling a little anxious and I, and I was like, okay, well, the, this is a way to escape from anxiety. I can quickly refresh, but then I have to spend the rest of the time in nature. I have to be hiking or camping or fishing or, or preparing food or talking with my wife, or we, we listened to an audiobook together while we were out on the camping trip. So that was very relaxing as well. Um, or spending time with my dog. Um, at the time I had just the one dog. Um, so, so I, I restricted myself to, I have to be taking recovery time and I, I fully believe, and, and I fully believe the research backs this up, that giving yourself that time to recover and to allow for that information to move from your working memory to your longer term memory, um, that downtime makes a big difference. Yeah, and I think that has played out, you know, folk wisdom is, is, has been saying for years, don't cram because cramming doesn't work, right? Yeah. Um, and that's that, you know, we're so busy. There's such a demand on us that maybe the three days before the exam, I'm just going to hit this really hard. But then we're re relying on our working memory to hold all those concepts. Where on the flip side, if we say, okay, I've studied, I've done what I can to move, you know, ideas into my long-term storage, um, and now leading up to the exam, I'm going to take like the three or four most difficult concepts for me and practice those mm -hmm. um, right before I go in. Um, and a lot of them, a lot of people, I, I think it tends to be things like the, the difference between SD and MO or the differences between um, the motivating operations, condition motivating operations. Those seem to be ones that really people struggle with. So be working on them all the time, but then maybe also be looking at the themes. You know, if you're taking mock exams, what are the themes of the questions you're missing? Don't memorize the question you missed, memorize the concepts embedded in that question. Make up new questions about that content and practice answering them. But um, look for ways to increase your ability to discriminate. And then whatever's left at the end that you're still struggling with, that's the part you're going to be studying up to the last minute not piles of information. You're not going to re-study the whole Cooper book before you go in because it's it's not really humanly possible for most of us with the other demands that are on our lives. Yeah. Well, and and I 
I will say this, and I'm not going to give away questions information because that's one, that's not allowed, but two, that's not ethical. Uh, but I will say this, my, my ability to take the time to learn how to assess good, better, best in relation to questions that were asked made all the difference. Like all the, all the nitty gritty knowledge was beneficial and, and I was able to figure things out. And the ones that I didn't remember, I was able to fix, figure out within context. So yeah. I found out, figured out contextual things and I did process of elimination that helped a lot too. But I will say that the majority of the questions that I at least experienced when I was on the test, it was, uh, it was asking, it was me trying to have to figure out which is good, which is better, which is best mm -hmm. within that scenario. And so the practice of, of breaking down um, interactions in a bullet journal or, or journaling, like you were suggesting, um, that would have helped me more. And in some respects, I was already doing that because I was trying to live behavior analytic concepts. I was trying to put on the glasses or the frame of seeing through the behavior analytic eyes as I was, as I was studying and living. And so I was pretty consistently figuring out ABCs. What's the MO? What's this? What's that? How is this interacting with this one? What's this one doing with this? Um, constantly trying to apply and live the concepts. And, and that made all the difference along with the trying to make it interesting, trying to make it fun. Um, yeah, absolutely. And um, for me, so, yeah. uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, for me, one piece was when I when I would take mock exams, I found myself missing the qualifiers, like which one is not or which one best exemplifies or, you know, um, looking for those words that change the meaning of the question and then asking myself, did I miss this question because I don't understand the concepts or did I miss it because I was a sloppy reader? Yeah. <laughs> like or I didn't read all the way to the all of the above I was just like there's the first one I see that's right yep it's that one um and so for me it's being intentional and slowing myself down mm -hmm. rather than um just you know going in all, no holds barred I'm excited about this I'm I'm good at this so I'm going to just answer it all really really quickly um but rather forcing myself to read every word um with kids at school a lot of times we'll say like you know, working through math problems, we'll give them a highlighter and we'll say you're highlighting the operation you're using in blue and you're hyper hi, 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 uh, highlighting, um, you know, the, the relevant numbers that you're going to calculate in pink or something. And we're giving them ways to signal to themselves the salient information. And for me, that's the strategy that I need with answering questions is reading the whole question very carefully and sometimes not doing that overgeneralization piece where we're like taking extra relational frames. Like we read the question and we're like, oh, I had this client. <laughs> I know what the answer is because I had this plan, not adding um, information or inferring information, but answering the question that is in front of us. Um, not the question based on the stuff that kind of led us to think was part of it. Yeah. And I am a slow reader. I, I, have a learning disability. I, I call it learning challenge because I've learned adaptively how to overcome it. Um, and I went into the test, me, myself, and I, and I finished the entire test with an hour to spare because I practiced that intentional reading, that slowing it down, 
it's weird. I slowed myself down and I got through it fast Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a result. Um, and I, I marked the question. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it is. Uh, I, so I, I would mark the questions that I wasn't sure on the answer of, and I, and I just move on. And some of them I didn't even answer, but the ones that I did answer, I'd selected what I thought was possibly the best answer, marked it, move on. So I got to the end hour to go go back. If I remember correctly, there were 17 questions that I had marked. Um, and I went back and reviewed each of them and I only changed answer on two. And then look at the clock, got 50 minutes to go. And I so wanted to go back through that test and reread everything. And I was like, you know, that if you do this, that you're going to mess up you're going to second guess yourself you're going to do it submit it so submit are you sure oh, okay yes i'm sure click are you sure you're sure <laughs> like ah don't do this to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you have to have that that willingness to face that uncertainty and again that goes we're back to the act skills component of it of being able to be like okay no i'm not sure but i am doing the best that i can i've done the best taken the best effort i've used the study strategies that i am aware of to be able to be successful i took my time through the test i allowed myself to recover prior to taking this test so that way i wasn't strung out and losing it (laughs) (laughs) and then in the test center i took five minutes to do some breathing and mindfulness as i'm sitting in front of the computer so i don't pass out (laughs) okay i'm sure click let's go yeah and even if it turns out that you you miss it by just a few points you know what you start somewhere and you have to build that's your baseline and and that's really a big takeaway that i want you know, my learners, my students, my supervisees to recognize is just because you didn't pass the exam, maybe on your first try or your second try does not mean you're not a good behavior analyst. Um, It just means that there's, you know, some responding that could be improved to hit that criterion. So um, there are some people I've worked with who were amazing at understanding behavior and writing treatment plans and working with parents, working with learners. Um, and it took them a couple of times to get through the exam because it's a different skill set. Mm-hmm. So um, we would never say, you know, to a learner, like, you're never going to get this. You should just give up. You're just not good at this. You know, you're not good at sorting objects. Um, we would never say that because it's, you know, it's counter to everything we believe about learning. But then to ourselves, we say, I'm just not a good test taker. And I see this in the questions that go up on social media, like almost every day in a study group, someone will ask a question, like, if I don't take the exam, um, what are my other options to use my education? Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're sort of cutting themselves off at the knees before they even take the exam because they're so intimidated by what they've been told about how hard it is or about the past weeks. And so I think we've got to get past this idea that I'm, I'm not going to be a good test taker. I'm not going to be able to do this. So I'm just not going to try. Well, I'm not that, going to try again. That goes back to selfless context versus selfless content. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a good test taker or tests are something I struggle with sometimes. 
right? Um, but then I, I, you know what? I'd like I'd like to bring this full circle because this isn't just for our our test takers, our studiers, right? This is also for our, our working behavior analysts, both experienced and new. How can we apply this towards helping our clients? If you have a client that is getting increasingly frustration level um, for a different program, let's say it's that one DTT program or that one program that's just really difficult they're struggling with, well, take the knowledge that we have from the working memory that you just learned about. Um, let's do that incremental rehearsal. Uh, you said McCrory 2002? Yeah, McCrory 2002. Um, What's the name of the, the paper? Do you, do you recall? Uh, I'm not sure. And McCory was not the first person. I want to say the first person was Tucker in 1989. Okay. Um, I will look for some citations for you. And I'll also give you a graphic, a very rudimentary graphic. Okay. I'm not a graphic artist. Um, breaking down the, the ratios of words. Um, another thing I would um, emphasize with reflective practice is because the, philosophically I don't use discrete trial unless there's no alternative like if my learner needs discrete repetitions you know and then we try to gamify it or something mm -hmm. but sometimes our learner is actually like our RBT or our BCABA who mm -hmm. is needing to learn a more difficult skill because I think running DTT is easier than uh, incidental teaching natural environment teaching um, yeah. really you know being cognizant of how to set up some free operative scenarios that's harder. So I, I like to use this reflective practice with my um, RBT or BC ABA as the learner, what's going to help them fluently apply um, a harder skill in running treatment programs. Because sometimes people want to default to that. And I think if, if I were four or five years old, I don't want to sit at a table um, running trials. I want to engage with my environment. So I think we need to also be like reflective about how can we create opportunities for the repetitions to occur in a more organic setting um, just because it's more human, it's more natural, it's more yeah. helpful for generalization. It's, it's so, engaging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, even for me, like with video games, like I would struggle to just sit and run trials over and over again. It's not reinforcing to me to sit and run trials. Um, yeah. So um you know and if our learner loves it though if that's what they love then that's what they love um and we can we can do the trials but if it's not what they love let's find a better way to teach them to get them the repetitions um in a more holistic way that helps them generalize well and i like dtt gets a bad rap because of how it's applied it's it's applied in we're, we're not we're not being reflective in our application of DTT. And so as a result, it's paired as an aversive. Yeah. Um, gamification is one way to make DTT um, interesting. And what I like to point out is why can't we dry, run DTT in NET? Um, you're cleaning up blocks and you say, hand me the red one, nice job. Hand me the green one, nice job. Like this is just one example and it's, it's for a younger client or a younger individual, but like that's DTT in a natural learning setting. Yeah. So you can do TT, DTT in any setting. And I'm glad you mentioned video games because um, that's one of my arguments for 
YDTT by default is not abusive or, or aversive because I know people, including myself, who will do DTT for hours for fun because it's interesting and engaging. Uh, because video games are DTT to a T. <laughs> and so like it's thinking with that compassion, it's thinking with the understanding that the other individual may or may not find this enjoyable. How can we make it interesting? Sondering um, a little about our, our learners. <laughs> uh-huh, sondering a little bit. And, and I'll give you a perfect example of the first time I made that big click with it. Um, so a client that I had had to do tracing shapes. Uh, younger client, highly vocal, but had some struggles. We were, we were actually working predominantly on um, fine motor. And so this client is tracing these shapes. And me as an RBT, kids plopped in front of me, run this program, right? That's what the BCBA did. And I was expected to run it. And there was really not a whole lot of instruction and that sort of thing. So I used a little bit of imagination. This, it's, it would happen to be Halloween time. And this kiddo was talking a lot about zombies and mummies and ghosts and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so has to trace the shape, right? So what I did is I tra partially traced the shape for this kiddo. And then I put my marker in the middle of it. It was a white, uh, it was a laminated sheet so we could wipe it off. And and I said, you have to finish this fence to get the, the, uh, keep the ghost in. Otherwise it's going to get, go get people. <laughs> and so he's like, Oh, cool. And so he's tracing really quickly. And over time I shaped it so that I was tracing less and less of the, the shape for this kiddo. So that eventually this kiddo was doing it completely themselves. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, um, as time went along, the, uh, now the ghost can get through the breaks in the shape because if you don't draw a straight line, that's a, that's a hole in the fence. So the ghost is going to get through or the, the werewolf or whatever. And um, by the time that that program was mastered and I made sure to tell every single RBT how to do this. So that way we didn't have behavior contrast. <laughs> we didn't. <have laughs> um, so every other RBT on the team was aware of it. And I was trying to make sure that they were all trying to do something similar, not necessarily identical. Um, that program, which was, before I implemented this, we were stuck on for about a month and a half. We mastered out in a week. Yeah. Yeah. And why shouldn't And he was asking to do it later? <laughs> He's like, can we do the zombie thing? I'm like, sure. Why not? Let's get some behavior momentum going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm also picturing like, you know, maybe mom's sitting in the car with your learner at some point waiting for a sibling at some activity and, and we've got to kill some time and you know, now we have a game we can play in the car. All we need is a paper and a pen. Yeah. Um, you know, and. Well, I've, it, we very quickly transitioned over to dot to dots. Yeah. And, and this kiddo learned that dot to dots were fun and were reinforcing too. Yeah. So now they're learning counting and um, yeah, I, I like it. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that this is what we can do with reflective behavior changes through thinking for ourselves, for those we supervise, for our clients and learners. How can we make this, this experience of learning be um, more whole and more engaging and happier and, and more socially significant? Yeah. And um, sorry, I want to make that last connection just in case people didn't catch it. 
Um, same thing for, for neural load. If, a, if an individual is overwhelmed, like there's a lot going on and you're aware of it, or even if it just looks like a lot is going on, it's okay to let your kid have a break. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes please. a little longer break than we think. Uh-huh. I see that a lot. Like if you start to um, offer a demand or even present with attention too soon, um, then they haven't really had the chance to, to recover yet. And it can just spur, you know, behaviors right back up. Yeah. Um, and, and another thing, uh, so, uh, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, plaque. Um, I, I think it's play and learning something, something, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. I should probably look it up. Um, let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, PPLAC, uh, so it's uh, pretend play and language assessment and curriculum. Okay, so that is a curriculum that is created by two BCBAs that operationalizes play. Oh, I have and not heard of it. It's it's really good. They there's a they even have a little podcast that goes into explaining it. Um, the 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 tool the book itself is only seventy five dollars, which is very reasonable, mm-hmm. considering how expensive some things out there can be. Um, and long and short of it, like if you think about early learners, we're talking between the ages of like one and nine ish that's kind of upwards end that's pretty high but maybe one in eight or seven or eight but um what are the kids social skills at those ages it's play mm-hmm. how do how do kids learn play like playing is a big part of it so i i sometimes hear people you know saying say in aba doing some scoffing about play play therapy or floor time things like that and my response to that is, well, yeah, maybe there's some research that shows that it's not as effective, but there are some things in there that are effective. So let's use our science to operationalize things. Let's try to understand a little bit better. And this, this, this approach, PLAC, P-P-L-A-C, pretend play and language assessment and sorry, language assessment and curriculum um, is an operationalized approach to play. And if we want to, if we want to our kiddos, especially if you're early intervention to have skills, although early intervention doesn't necessarily mean uh, this isn't limited to early intervention, because if somebody doesn't have the skills and we can teach them those skills, well, let's use our tools. Let's, let's uh, get to a point where we're showing our learners how to engage with these things. And a part of that is that from the neuroscience perspective, it also allows for neural load to be reduced. It allows for us to use our working memory and what we actually have, all, all these different things that we have to take into account. Um, recently was reviewing a paper that was basically saying that um, behavior analysis and neuroscience have so much in common that it's, it's um, basically a given that eventually we're going to merge I, yeah, I've had that thought myself. Like yeah. it, it's making it observable. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, I fully believe that um, functional contextualism or uh, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, ACBS, um, is the next wave in behaviorism because it's 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 starting that process. We're already in process of, of joining those things. And ACBS is a special interest of special interest group in ABAI, but not many people know that ACBS is actually larger than ABAI. Interesting. I didn't know that, but that is one of my current favorite websites to cutter around on is uh, ACBS's website and their resources. And what I love about, um, about that group is they're disseminating. There is so much you could get for free there's no hierarchies of, you know, with ACT, who can be, who, who can be learning it, what you have to do to be competent in it. They have their, um, you know, peer, peer review for trainers, but there's no like hierarchy in the system. They want people to use and benefit from the principles of contextual behavior in every application where we interact with behavior. And I love that. It aligns with my values of when I say, you know, reflective practice, reflective behavior change, I don't just mean behavior analysis. I mean, yeah. anybody who's working peripheral to behavior. Well, and I, and I like to draw the connection and help people see that they, while they may not be in a board certified behavior analyst, they are, everybody can be a behavior analyst in that we need to be analyzing behavior. Mm -hmm. So a parent is a behavior analyst. The teacher is a behavior analyst. Um, we also have to make sure that we're teaching them appropriately so that they, that way they're, they're utilizing skills in a, in an ethical manner and operating within a scope that they can operate in. Um, sure. But that's also what we have to do for ourselves. And ultimately we want our, the, the clients that we serve to become behavior analysts themselves because they're engaging in analyzing their own behavior and connecting with the world around them. Um, just so you all know that the website for ACBS is contextualscience.org. Um, it's a fantastic website. And I believe that membership in ACBS is not expensive. Um, last, I, I pay my dues a little bit ago. I think that they ask a minimum ask for professional is $15, but you can pay more. Wow. That's super cheap. If I, if I remember correctly, don't quote me, that might have changed. But I, I do know that their one of their attitudes is trying to make information more accessible. Um, and I wholeheartedly agree with that because um, Act Natural and Obehave, the, the two podcasts I create, are licensed as open source education materials so that more people can access them. Um, and, and that's, that's a big passion for me is how do we address these problems? Well, freely available information that is hopefully quality. I hope I, we're pre producing quality content here. Uh, <laughs> if, if not, but, tell us. So <laughs> yes, please. Um, but like that, that quality content, uh, I'm hoping is, is making it so that studying, learning, applying is easier. Like, yeah because the only way that we can change is by learning how to discriminate, to be aware. If we do the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, then we're crazy, right? Or we're getting reinforced somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what is that reinforcer and how do we hack it? Yeah. 
<laughs> and and is ABA the only way? No, it's not. There's other there's other more uh, effective ways as well of of trying to understand the world. And as part of what I try to bring in here when I mention other theories in psychology, as I become aware of them and trying to make connections, and I think a part of that is also understanding that. If we limit ourselves, then the really the only person that the only group we're limiting is ourselves. Like true science is loving discovery. It's not trying to tear down somebody else's approach. It's saying, okay, what's working? All right. Can we test this? Can we get this under stimulus control? Can we confirm whether or not this is indeed true or not? All right. And then, hey, when you're working with somebody, when you're working with somebody who does floor time or, or, or play therapy or something like that, instead of saying, well, you're just not evidence-based instead, you could be like, yeah, play is really important. It's their social skills for a kid. And Hey, when you're doing that, did you know you're doing DTT? And yeah, yeah. this is NET right here. And you're reinforcing that kid. Hey. And then what that's doing is instead of breaking down uh, bridges of communication and lines of communication, we're building bridges we're teaching. Yeah. You know, there's something really interesting about people who are not willing to collaborate or ask for help. Um, research says they tend to be the people who are less certain of their own practices. So hmm. the more we can increase somebody's certainty with their own tasks, the more open they are to collaborating with others. Um, and I think it goes back to what you said earlier about, um, how reinforcing it is to be right and how shame inducing maybe it is to be corrected. So if I'm not certain, I'm just going to kind of quietly do my thing, but I might not play nice with others because then they might find out (laughs) I'm not as certain. So have, um, you, have you heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah, I love that. Okay. <laughs> I so the name of it. The, I the, mean, the, a, a different one, but yeah. <laughs> the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is like, so if you learn a little bit, then you're, and it's, a, it's an X, Y axis. So the, the, the chart is, as you start learning something, you spike up on your, lo- your level of certainty. And mm-hmm. then you, once you hit, hit a certain point along the X axis, X axis being, um, what you know, and the y-axis being certainty, you hit a spike or a peak on that. And then as you keep learning, all of a sudden your, your certainty goes down and it's a big precipitous drop very, very fast. And then it kind of levels out a little bit. And then over time, as you continue learning and gaining mastery, then that certainty goes up again, but it never truly goes to the same level as that, that peak. And that peak is what I call, uh, knows enough to be dangerous. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And the problem with that is, is that because of that phylogenetic characteristic of we want to be certain and we don't want to admit that we're wrong. A lot of times people like, oh, people are so stupid. And I'm like, yes, we are because we don't want to be wrong. And this is the reason why, but like, that's where, so this goes back to that, um, free will or, or self-autonomy, right? Is if, if you are sitting on the top of the Dunning-Kruger peak and you're just hanging out there, then, then you're letting your environment act on you and you're not acting on your environment. But 
if you can push through the discomfort and dive deeper into that uncertainty and it's okay, it's okay to not know, it's okay to admit it and, and dive deeper in, then what happens is that's when you're starting, in my opinion, in exerting your free will, because you're diving deep in and you're engaging with your environment as it is, or at least as you can perceive it. Mm-hmm. And you're being reflective in your behavior and your behavior change. And it, it's, it's so hard, but it's so good. I would never, uh, I wouldn't go back. I can't go back to the way it was before because the way it was before was more difficult because there was so much suffering there. I'd rather deal with the hard than deal with the suffering. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, and I think, um, you know, sort of key to that piece is the ability to self-assess. What, what do I know? What can I do? What do I need a little bit of help with? And that's, uh, that's humbling, right? Because yeah. if, I, if I can ask for help, then I'm acknowledging that I don't know everything, which can be a scary place to be. Yeah. It can be. But uh, with that, I think that's our time. So Jennifer, thank you so much. Uh, I know you and I have chatted about some other topics to talk about. So I look forward to, to, to planning those. This was my pleasure. I loved it. So uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you, um, what would be a way that they could contact you? Um, Aside from that, and if it's just that group um, that I'm going to be posting the link to in the show notes, then then that's fine. But if there is another way, how would they do that? Um, Yeah, so if somebody wants to connect, they can certainly email me. It's reflectivebehaviorchange at gmail.com. And I do answer all my email. And uh, so be happy to connect and network and, and, you know, receive some corrective feedback if I've gone down a path. That's not right. (laughs) Um, But yeah, happy to always expand my circle of Uh, folks who love what I love, which is, you know, diving into, to what we do and why we do it. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, folks. So remember that the act natural podcast, um, Oh wait, sorry. The old behave podcast. (laughs) This feels a little bit of like both. It might have to, it might have to be a crossover episode. We'll see. (laughs) But, um, remember that the podcast is an open source education material, which means that you can use all or part towards, um, continuing learning, education, exploration. Just remember to cite your sources. Thank you so much for joining us today and being a part of this conversation and we'll behave. <laughs>